So last Sunday, uh, we spent uh, the morning looking at Israel's all-time failure up to that point in the nation's history. And this is only sadly a meager 10 months into the nation. While Moses was away up on the mountain receiving from God his instructions of how to prepare for his presence, the people impatiently read headlong into blasphemous idolatry. Incurring God's righteous wrath, we ended with the Israelites recovering from a plague. Church, you will remember that it was Israelites' former master, Egypt, who was well acquainted with these plagues. And now the very people who have been the beneficiaries of God's divine rescue have become subject to the same judgment. However, amidst all the carnage, Exodus 32 ends with a word of hope in verse 41 or 44. Now go, lead the people to this place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Last Sunday, our brother Tanya wonderfully walked us through Israel's calf fiasco, showing that God responds to covenant breakers with mercy and justice. So as we continue this morning, it might be helpful to think of Exodus 32 through 34 as two separate acts of one divine play. Dramatic play. Exodus 32 shows us how Israel tumbled all the way down, hitting rock bottom, humbled to the dust, in the rubble of God's broken covenant. And then Exodus 33 and 34 depict God's grace and mercy to restore his covenant with the people. What we find in these three chapters, church, is among the Bible's most significant events. As we look this morning, I hope that we'll see what is the breadth and length and height and depth of God's love towards us in Christ. So, let's turn to Exodus 33. Verses one through six. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up amongst you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up amongst you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. So here in verses one and three, one through three, God gives Moses the command to leave Sinai with the people to take them to the land of promise, the land that he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Amazingly, God is faithful to his promise despite the people's disobedience. However, we see in verse three, they also receive an unfortunate caveat to this, to this plan. He says, but I will not go among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. God would no longer be joining the people on the journey. 
If even for a single moment he were to go up with them, they would be destroyed, lest I consume you. And what is the reasoning for this? Why, why, is, he, why is he leaving the people? Well, twice we see that he calls them stiff-necked. Now, was God leaving them because of their poor sleep posture? No. This was a common way to call someone stubborn. We might say hard-headed. And this was God's judgment. The saying derives from the stubbornness of an ox who had refused to be guided along by his master's goad rod, directing it left and right. These Israelites would have known just how frustrating it would have been to plow a field or drag a cart with his ox being stiff-necked, unyielding to his direction. Now we might experience this when you want to go on a walk with your dog. You want to enjoy the morning, trying to keep your dog on on the sidewalk, but his nose won't yield to your direction. Friends, to be stiff-necked is to be resistant, stubborn, proud, and convinced of your own ways. How would you describe your heart before the Lord today? If you really think, are you stiff-necked like Israel? Have you dug in your heels on a certain issue or area of your life that you know God has, has claim over? Are you resisting his prodding and apologizing for a harsh word you said to somebody or withholding forgiveness from a brother or sister? Maybe even you've been attending uh, Sunday mornings for quite some time and have really enjoyed uh, hearing about Christ and, and the community that we have at Church on Mill, but all the while unwilling to yield yourself personally to God's call in your life, to submit to him. I don't know where we're all at. I don't know uh, every heart, but friend, do not resist the Lord's prodding. Seek him while he may be found. We find in Ecclesiastes 12, 11, the Lord says, the words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given from, by one shepherd. Church, Jesus is the chief shepherd. He guides us along with his wise words for our good. May we ever be attentive to the shepherd who loved his sheep unto death. Now God's aim in rescuing Israel was for the very fact that he could dwell with them, that his presence would reside among them. But due to their sinfulness, God appears to have altered this course. Moving along into verses four through six, we see the people's reaction to Moses' Moses's message. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. This was absolutely devastating news to their ears. While they might have been able to breathe a sigh of relief from being spared of the judgment of the 3,000, to hear that God would distance himself from them was worse than that judgment. Well, wait a minute. On the other hand, don't the Israelites know what opportunity they've been afforded? Was God's absence really a bad thing? Not only had they been spared from death, but they would actually get to inherit the promised land. More still, because God was no longer going with them, they wouldn't have to worry about getting him angry anymore and incurring his wrath. What a deal to receive God's blessings without needing God anymore. Not so. 
these Israelites were beginning to understand, if anything, that to receive the blessings from God become worthless apart from the presence of God. Now, of course, God is omniscient, and he's always with Israel, wherever they went. But in this sense, the presence of Yahweh would be removing from Israel his loving, intimate fellowship because they had violated the covenant. Israel, following in the footsteps of their parents, Adam and Eve, had been removed from God's presence before even being brought in. All right? (laughs) Removal from God's presence is the consequence of sin. And if we think about Exodus 32, Israel's whole motive in creating the calf was to fulfill this craving and a desire for direct and obvious presence to lead them on their journey. And ironically, what they did would cause them to live with even less than what they had before. God would send his angel to lead them. Moving on to verse seven. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he'd gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would, spoke to, would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again to the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. God's distance was further shown through a temporary tent that Moses would apparently set up. Now this tent was not the gloriously arrayed tabernacle that we saw Moses receive in the instructions from verses, or from chapters 25 to 31. This was a temporary tent of meeting. And the emphasis we get from this section is Yahweh's geographical distance from Israel. I mean, just look at the details in in this passage. Five times the tent is said to be outside the camp far away from the people, outside the camp, far away from the camp. Everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp, whenever Moses went out to the tent. And further, in in Numbers 2, we later see that the, the tabernacle was designed to remain in the center of the camp. This couldn't be more different. And additionally, we see Moses' name seven times, further revealing and elevating his status as, Moses, as, as Israel's mediator. And now, God said any of the Israelites were free to seek out the Lord, but they must do, through, do so through Moses' mediation. Verse 11 concludes this section by noting the close relationship Moses maintained with Yahweh. Let's look at verse 11. It says, the face-to-face interaction he had was as a friend has with a man. Now this language was to convey transparency and clarity in the way that all good friendships are characterized. Now while their sin had fractured a relationship, they remained on speaking terms, but only barely through this mediator. 
The mediator, Moses, was the sole man who retained access to Yahweh, and he was their only hope if they were ever gonna be with him again. Now, verses 12 through 23 bring us into the tent. It gives us a zoomed-in look on a conversation that Moses has had with Yahweh. Verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, so you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious on whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a rock by where you shall stand on the, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Surely all of us here this morning, at some point or another, have been tasked with an assignment or responsibility that we felt weighing over our head by. If ultimately not impossible to overcome, and certainly at least unclear in your mind how you'll be able to see your way through. Now for many in this room, uh, it's been a, the last few classes of a, of a degree program. We get all geared up in the fall, ready for the final push, only to realize that capstone project has to be that, that long. Maybe for others it's been a new job, like the first real grown-up job you land once you finish that capstone project. And when difficulties inevitably set in, exposing your inexperience, they cause you to feel like an imposter or a fraud. Uh, for more recently in our church family, it's been becoming more uh, new moms and dads. And by no means am I intending to disregard the sweet joy and blessing that parenthood brings still amidst all the great moments. Surely there have been thoughts when exhaustion and stress set in of wondering how in the world will I make it through the week without messing up my kid. <laughs> I heard laughs from this direction. <laughs> and for others in our body, it's been your marriage at various points. Like children, marriage is a tremendous gift from the Lord. But on some days, the thought of loving your, that other person with a Christ-like love seems like an impossible mountain to climb. In a room this full, 
These examples merely scratch the surface of responsibilities in our lives that, that cause us to see how, to how we make it, make it through. We feel powerless to progress. And church, this too is a little bit of how Moses must have felt as he met with the Lord in verse 12. Facing the daunting call to lead Israel out of the camp, away from Sinai, into the promised land, without God's presence, must have been impossible to think how he would do that. As, as revealing as this portion of scripture is, to give a look into Moses' reaction or, inter, or interactions with God, I hope that it will serve as a model for us today, for our own relationship with our Heavenly Father. When life's trials feel unbearable, church, like Moses, let's go boldly before God in prayer. Moses uses his privileges to access Yahweh by interceding on the behalf of others. In verse 12 and 17, Moses appeals to the Lord that he would restore what he previously removed, his presence among the people. In verse 13, as I've studied this week, I've come to, to truly love. Let's read that. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you, in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. He prays, Lord, if it is true that I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways, that I may know you. And please do this, so that I may continue to have favor in your sight. The favor that God had shown Moses caused him to pray even more fervently that he would know him more, more deeply and better, that he would continue to know God's favor. Is this not your heart, Christian? And kids, I think back to our VBS last month, verse 24, or Psalm 24, five. It says, make your ways known to, the, make, make your ways known to me, Lord, Teach me your paths. Moses had experienced so much of God, yet this only caused him to desire him more. But we see that Moses' concern was not only for himself. He, got, he says, God, this is your people. Moses' desire to know God personally did not turn inward but outward. It drove him to intercede for others. An increasing desire for God will result in increasing love for others. This is how the, greatest, how the great commandment is fulfilled, to love God and to love people. Christianity is not an individual sport, and Moses' prayer reflects that. I praise God that I'm in a church that knows that to be true. In verses 14 through 17, we see God did accept Moses' request, and God would grant Moses' prayer to be with his people. And verse 17 explains on what basis. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that I have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Why did Yahweh decide to go up with the people? Was it because Moses prayed such a great prayer? He said the right words? He scratched God's itch the right way? Ultimately, the reason why God went with the people was because of his mercy and grace. God intentionally gave the people a warning in, in chapter 33, 3, 
to wake them up so that they would realize where their sin would take them. Even God's hard words, church, are given in love so that we may grasp the seriousness of sin and flee from it. Now with God's presence secured by Moses, graciously given, one might think that he would be content, satisfied, but Moses sought to squeeze every drop of communion with God that he could. Why? Because he desired assurance that God would indeed be with him. If we think back to the ratification of the covenant in chapter 24, what, what, did, what did God show Moses to confirm the covenant? He brought the elders up on the mountain and they shared a meal with, with Yahweh. Moses must have expected a similar sign. And God responds to him with a yes, but no. Yes, God would cause his goodness to pass by Moses through a proclamation of his name. But no, God says that if Moses were to see his glory in the fullness of it, his in his face, he would die. Man shall not see me and live. God will graciously answer Moses' prayer to see his glory, to see enough to satisfy a longing, but to restrict so that he may live. And in verses 21 and 22, God provides Moses with the suitable shelter of a cleft in a rock that would cover him until it was clear to look. And as we sing, rock of ages, cleft for me, God would protect Moses. Moses here must, must ultimately settle for an indirect gaze at the, grace, at the glory of Yahweh. However, in the New Testament, we, we find that in Jesus, we have an exceedingly greater access to the insight of God's glory than Moses would have ever had. John 1.14 says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Moses' request to look at God's glory was denied because it would have killed him because of his sin. While he was a sufficient mediator for the people at the time, he himself needed mediation to see God. Jesus, however, is the son who came directly from the Father for the very purpose of mediating his glory safely to sinners like you and me. In Jesus, we see the fullness of God's glory because he himself is God. And it is through the scriptures, church, as we read about his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his kingship, we behold his glory today. What this passage shows us is that Moses' desire for God's presence far exceeded his desire for God's gifts and even the greatest gift, the promised land. And as I've had to ask myself this week, church, what would you say about you? Is your desire for God himself to know his ways and to behold the glory in the face of Jesus Christ? Or are your desires dominated by other things, even the good gifts that he gives? And while the difference is subtle, one's heart's true desires quickly become apparent when life gets hard. And when life's difficulties come, the only stability that we'll have is knowing God himself. That will get us through. 
Texts like Exodus 33 force us to reflect on this crucial question because to enjoy the gifts from God apart from enjoying the God of the gifts is ultimately worthless. I'd encourage you later, this day, later today or this week to think and pray to, the, pray to the Lord. Ask him to show your heart. Maybe you might get lunch with somebody and this might be a conversation you have. Confess sin, confess areas of your life where you have allowed the good gifts of God to dominate knowing God. By God's grace, church, may we with the psalmist say, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Now moving into chapter 34, we'll see that this intense drama that we've, that we've witnessed from chapters 32 and 34 finally begins to de-escalate and settle to the original place that Moses thought he'd be uh, with God's gracious reconciliation with Israel. The major crisis of God's removing his presence from his people has been averted due to God's goodness to show mercy and be gracious to whomever he wills. God's presence ensures that Israel will be his people once again. However, they would still need a covenant to define how to relate to him. Because much of the material that, we, that will be covered in chapter 34 has been covered previously as we've studied Exodus in chapters 20 to 23, the book of the covenant, we won't read the whole section, but we'll, we'll, we'll begin in verse one of chapter 34. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hands two tablets of stone. And then moving on to verse 10. And he said, this is the Lord saying, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels, such as not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are, among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing I will do with you. God has decided to forgive the Israelites and welcome them back into covenant fellowship. Truly God will be gracious on whom he will be gracious and show mercy to whom he will show mercy. Yahweh's words in verses one through four echo back to verse nine, chapter 19 when God first called Moses to prepare the people to enter into the covenant relationship with him. Here, God says he will write on these new tablets, the very same words that he were on the first set. Totally undeserving, Israel would not be partners in a second class covenant with God. They would be fully restored to their previous standing by God's grace. And jumping down to the section from between verses 10 and 28, God lays out the stipulations of his renewed covenant. And this section can be divided into three main portions. How are the people supposed to relate to God as his covenant people? 
verses 10 through 11, reaffirms the sweet privileges the people would recover through the covenant. God tells Moses that Israel would be restored in order to be the conduit of his glory being made known to all the nations. The nations would come to marvel at the works Yahweh would do through his people, bringing glory to his unmatched name. Continuing on, God gives Israel an explicit call to covenant fidelity in verses 12 through 16. In verse 14, God called the people to worship Yahweh alone because he is a jealous God. I think sometimes we can cringe when we read things like that. God is jealous? That doesn't sound like, like the God that I thought I knew. To our modern Western sensibilities, this may sound egotistical at best and dangerous at worst. To call someone jealous is to point out a deficiency in their character. But God's jealousy is not a deficiency, it's a virtue. Like a husband towards his wife, this jealous love, unwilling to share the affections of his people with any other created being. Only God is worthy to win our greatest affections. Further, God commands Israel to take drastic measures upon the gods of the nations to prevent themselves from committing spiritual adultery. And finally, we, we find an abridgment of, of the Book of the Covenant that concludes in verses 17 through 26. And rem you remember the covenant functioned as a way to distinguish Israel from all the surrounding nations. In keeping with the festivals, for instance, like Passover, the people would remember their identity as redeemed people. They were dependent on him. This was to remind them that they were dependent on him to sustain them going forward. And when it's all said and done, God allows Moses to dwell on the mountain for 40 days in his presence, 40 days and nights without eating anything. Verse 28 says that he neither ate nor drank. And God, Moses was sustained by the Lord's presence on the mountain. Oh, church, this must have been a tremendous gift for a man who learned over the course of his life that God was sufficient to meet every one of his needs through his good presence. And this dramatic play ends in verses 29. Let's read that. When Moses came down from the Mount Sinai, with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the, that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with him, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of his face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. So you'll remember last time we saw Moses coming down after spending 40 days and nights on the mountain. The people 
were acting crazy. And Moses was burning with righteous anger at their idolatry. This time, he came, he came down not with a face fuming in fury, but with a face glowing with glory. His face shone because he had been with God. Basking in God's glory, even if it was in a cleft of the rock, left an obvious impression on the man. However, when the people saw him, they were afraid to draw near. Now, wasn't this the same people who had mourned at God's presence being removed earlier in the chapter? Shouldn't they have rejoiced to see their mediator reflecting the glory of Yahweh? Obviously, unaware of the mercy that God had shown the people up on the mountain through renewing the covenant, the people shirked back from the holiness radiating off of Moses. Evidently, they remembered, if one thing, God's warning that if he went among them, he would consume them. Perhaps they assumed that Moses was coming down to destroy another 3,000. Because of their sin, they felt uncomfortable coming near the glory. The people eventually do come to Moses, and they see that he brought a message not of destruction, but of restoration. Moses' face shining served as the confirming proof that God would be with his people again. Now, we, we skipped a little portion in Exodus 34, and I want to go back and read that in verses 5 and 6, because I think this serves to show us the, the, this, this, this dialogue between God and Moses, shows us the, the motive and the reason for God to be with his people again we see that God answers Moses' prayer in this section to see his glory. And in doing so, we learn why God chose to be, uh, chose to remain with the stiff-necked people, rather to give them over to the idolatry. So let's read beginning in verse five of chapter 34. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. We find here that Moses' prayer to see God's glory is answered not by visible sight, but through a proclamation of his name. Moses saw the glory of the Lord through the attributes of God. And it's in these attributes that we see that at the core of God's very heart to show mercy and grace towards sinners. Because the Lord is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, and that he forgives sinners and transgressors, that he keeps the promises that he's made towards people like the Israelites, like you and me, 
on account of this amazing revelation of the Lord, Moses responds in the only appropriate way, head bowed in adoration and reverent worship. In our staff devotional this week, uh, someone insightfully pointed out that Moses' request to continue with Israel was based on the very fact that they were being stiff-necked people. Now this was the very thing that prompted Yahweh to withhold his presence from the people. And Moses pointed to that very reason for him to go with them. And unlike Aaron, Moses doesn't offer a lame excuse for his sin. He knows what he's done was wrong. He knows the people have sinned against God. That they are indeed a stiff-necked people. But it's an account on that fact that he asks Yahweh to show mercy. There's no sense in hiding our sin from God. He knows all of us more than we know ourselves. And we read here in in this precious passage that his mercy travels down a thousand generations, far eclipsing the third and fourth generation that that receive his wrath. Yet it poses a, a, a question for us. How could God, who is who is just, how could he justify showing such extravagant grace and mercy towards Israel? And as verse uh, seven says, how could he be a God who shows mercy, but also by no means clears the guilty? How could God on one hand forgive iniquity and transgression and sin, and on the other hand, be a God who will by no means clear the guilty? How, How does that reconcile? How can God do that? And no doubt, God had showed Israel mercy in restoring the covenant and continuing with them. But doesn't this fly in the face of God's supposed justice? Do do we see the dilemma? There's a dilemma here. How can God's forgiveness towards Israel with his justice being left on the shelf, it makes God appear cheap and easy? How can God be merciful and just? How can he allow his presence to reside among sinful people? This is the riddle that is littered throughout the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 34, 6 and 7, as we read in Joel, is quoted 27 times throughout the Old Testament, and it's left unanswered. As amazing as this was, Moses saw the sight of God's glory. It was a limited for his protection. The limitation of of God's glory that Moses saw, we see the fuller revelation of that glory in the New Testament. And the answer to this riddle, the answer to this question of how God could be both merciful and just, the answer is found at the cross of Calvary in Jesus' substitution, his his substitutionary death for his people. A righteous and holy God can justify ungodly people because in Jesus' death, Mercy and justice were perfectly reconciled. If you've never heard the gospel, this is the gospel. Jesus dying, taking the just wrath onto himself so that sinners like you and me can, who recognize their need can receive mercy. We see a great picture of this in Titus chapter three. It should be on the board. 
Titus 3, 4 through 7. It says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Church, the very goodness, the very goodness and loving kindness that Moses saw on the mountain as Yahweh revealed his glory is, has appeared to us in Jesus Christ, bringing salvation and the regenerating presence of God through his Holy Spirit. As wonderful as this would have been for Moses, the communion to be with God on the mountain for 40 days, we have it so much better than he ever knew. As we looked at John 1.14, we see God's fullest revelation of the glory of himself in his son's face. And through the indwelling Holy Spirit, by God's presence literally resides inside of us. Rather than temporarily causing our faces to shine. The Apostle Paul further gave reference to the veiled Moses in his letter to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 3 saying that when someone turns to the Lord to receive him by faith, the veil that was used to cover for protection is removed. This enables one to see the fullness of God's glory in Jesus. And 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to, the, to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Church, God's presence resides with his people because he is gracious and merciful. And by beholding Jesus with eyes of faith, the very glory of Yahweh, the glory that changed Moses' face, takes, takes residence up in our hearts. It transforms us into his image from one, to glory, one degree of glory to the next. If you're here today, and you would say you don't know God's presence in your life. Know that all people were created to know and enjoy fellowship with him, to know intimate fellowship with, with the Lord who created them, and to glorify God by reflecting his true image to the world. And only in Christ can you fulfill what you were created for. And because of Christ's sacrificial death on the cross, you personally can be forgiven of your sin. And this will bring you into fellowship with God that no idol could give you. I would encourage you to confess your sin, repent and believe in this gospel today. And if you do know Christ, the goal of your life is to become transformed into the glory of the Lord. And we do that by beholding Jesus. So be in his word. Look, spend time with him like Moses prayed. Let's pray. Father, you are so merciful and gracious. We thank you that you have found us and you have given us this gospel truth that reconciles us to you. Thank you, Father, for showing mercy and being gracious to sinners like us. Father, thank you for sending 
the Holy Spirit to reside and, and, and indwell us, that we would know your presence permanently in ways that Moses only knew temporarily. Lord, like Moses, we desire to know you. We desire to be conformed to your image. We desire to know your ways. God, show us your glory in the face of Jesus. God, give us a desire to be near you. And thank you ultimately that you have drawn near to us in your son. Lord, save those who don't know you. There are many amongst us in the city, in our, in our state, Lord, who don't know you, across the street who don't know you. Lord, save them. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.